Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 271, Does Your Trinity Theory Require Relative Identity? I'm going to warn you right off the bat, this episode of the Trinity's podcast is going to get a little bit technical, and I don't apologize for it, although if you don't like the technical episodes, you can definitely skip this one. The reason I don't apologize for it is because a little bit of technicality is the only solution to a whole lot of widespread confusion brought on by pervasively vague language. I decided to make this episode because either today or tomorrow I'm going to turn in my final chapter, my conclusion for my debate book with apologist Chris Date. And a lot of the things I'm discussing today had to do with that, but I couldn't get into all these technicalities at their proper length in a popular book like that. But some things I say particularly toward the end of this episode will be relevant to that debate. So if you're an apologist, this episode is for you. You need to learn this stuff and up your game in your apologetics, especially if you're trying to defend the deity of Christ or the Trinity. One way you can immediately clarify your work is to stop saying that Jesus is God. I know it's traditional, but the problem is that that statement that Jesus is God is vague, and there are two importantly different interpretations of what maybe you have in mind. One way to interpret it is as a statement of predication. To say that Jesus is God would be to say that he is divine. It's ascribing qualities to him. Now, you may also have some underlying theory about what it is to have divine qualities or just qualities in general. But anyway, by saying Jesus is God, the meaning can just be that Jesus is divine. Whether you think that means having the divine essence or being a part of God or being a divine person, subsisting in the divine nature, etc., It's a description. Logically, it's similar to the cat is orange or Barack Obama is a human being, things like that. If you're saying that Jesus is God and you mean it as predication, you're in effect saying the same thing as that Jesus is a God, which is by definition a thing which is divine. But capital G-O-D in our language is used like a name. And so Jesus is God can mean instead of just predication or description, it can be an identification. You're saying that he just is the one God. In this case, it's like saying that Samuel Clemens just is Mark Twain, or Slick Willie just is Bill Clinton, or W just is George W. Bush. Those are all true claims. In each case, you've got two names that co-refer. If you're saying that Jesus just is the one God, You're saying that the terms Jesus and God, when God is used as a name of the one true God, you're saying that those terms co-refer. This is a very different sort of claim. It's not mere description. One way I describe it is as it's collapsing what may appear to be two things together. When you identify things, you're realizing that if you're trying to represent the things in reality, you don't need to have different representations for these. Just one representation will do. Right? Imagine that you're an immigrant to the U.S. You just came into the country in the 1990s, and you hear some Republicans talking about Slick Willie. And uh, this is some tricky guy who's very golden-tongued, and he's 
hard to pin down and he's very charming and likable and people just believe what he says because they like the way he says it. You're like, wow, this guy sounds like a real rascal. And then you turn on the TV and you see two-term president, Democrat Bill Clinton talking on TV. And you're like, oh, I like that guy. Okay, so you don't realize that Slick Willie just is Bill Clinton. You've heard about this Slick Willie and you think, oh, he's kind of a weasel. And then this Bill Clinton, he seems like a really admirable guy. At least, okay, before 1998. Um, so when you finally learn this truth that the one just is the other, you collapse them. You don't have one area of your mind for Slick Willie and another area for facts having to do with, you know, Bill Clinton, the president. You realize, oh, I just need one area. There's really just one subject matter here. Now, it's easy enough to see the distinction between just a predication or description and an identification statement. However, if you read contemporary evangelical apologists, they are all tied in knots about identity. Just total confusion is the rule. And it's simply because they have never studied the logic of identity generally. A lot of people in apologetics mostly just read one another. And so the confusion just kind of conglomerates and spreads. And when they run into problems that relate to identity, they just cover over their confusions with rhetoric and vague talk and with aggressive charges at the other side, just assuming their view and begging the question and things like that. Basically, they just bull their way through it. If you think someone like Dr. James White or Dr. Michael Brown are experts on the Trinity, you need to observe that they are utterly confused about what I'm talking about in this episode. And when someone brings forward precise arguments about the Trinity or the Incarnation, Jesus and God, they just run for cover. They don't like precise arguments. They don't know how to deal with them. They don't understand them. They just prefer to go back to their comfortable rhetoric. And it's not just those two. You could read J. Warner Wallace, Josh McDowell, Robert Morey. These are not stupid people. They're smart people, and they're educated on certain topics but they do not understand the basic logic of identity, the kind of thing that you would study in an introductory deductive logic class in a modern university. If you're a philosophy major and you've had a class like that, you're going to be less confused than these PhD big shots when it comes to these topics. And if you want to be an apologist who's competent, you need to get up to speed on this. Now, in the rest of this episode... I'm going to help you to see whether or not your views on the Trinity commit you to what philosophers call relative identity theory. And one thing you should know going in is that most analytic theologians do not endorse relative identity theory. So these people have very sophisticated views on the Trinity and the Incarnation. People like Oxford professor Brian Leftow, former Oxford professor Richard Swinburne, retired philosopher William Hasker, apologist and philosopher William Lane Craig, they do not appeal to relative identity. They think relative identity is a wrong-headed, poorly motivated theory, and they don't want any theology or Christology that commits them to that wrong-headed theorizing. These people are familiar with the basic logic of identity, and they craft their theories to get around problems involving identity. If you don't understand some of these problems that I'm going to talk about in this episode, you don't even understand part of the motivation for their theories. These Trinity theories are crafted, in part, to get around difficulties concerning identity. Now, there's another approach to the Trinity, as evidenced by philosophical theologian Dr. James Anderson. 
if you're a negative Mysterian about the Trinity, you don't try to avoid apparent inconsistencies by being very careful what you say about identity. You just embrace them. But in embracing apparent inconsistencies, you're not trying to smooth them away using relative identity theory. If you're one of these Eastern Orthodox folks like Dr. John Baer or Dr. Bo Branson, and you adhere to what you call the monarchy of the Father, those views don't involve any appeal to relative identity. They don't need relative identity theory. However, some Trinity theories do need relative identity. And my experience is that a lot of times people pushing these theories don't realize that their theories require such a controversial thesis about identity. These are typically apologists who imagine that they're just following the Bible without relying on or requiring any extra-biblical assumptions or theories or controversial speculations. And these are people who think that, quote, the Trinity requires us to say that the Father and the Son are the same God, and yet they are different divine persons. In fact, that claim comes out obviously false, obviously incoherent, unless this controversial relative identity theory is true, as I'll explain. So identity is a weird relation. Another way to explain what we're talking about is just it's the concept of numerical identity, or being the same thing. It's just by definition the following four things. First of all, it's transitive. So if one thing's identical to another and that second thing's identical to a third thing, then the first thing has to be identical to the third thing. It's like bigger than. It's transitive. It passes along in that way. This relation is symmetrical. If A is identical to B, then B is identical to A. In this respect, it's like the relation near to, and it's unlike the relation father of. Third, this relation is, and this gets kind of weird, it's reflexive. It's a relation that can only apply to a thing and itself. Now you might say, well, is it a relation at all? Hmm, may depend on what you mean by relation. But we're talking about identity statements here. And if we're making a true identity statement, we have to just be talking about one thing. If we're saying things are not identical, they have to be two things. If we're saying they are identical, then quote those things really just turn out to be one thing. So you can never have two different things that are related by identity. Identity is a relation a thing can only bear to itself. The fourth point is that identity in this sense forces absolute indiscernibility. If the one thing just is the other, then these things can't ever at any single time differ. Or even if you want to say they're in timeless eternity, they couldn't differ there. So they can't differ at any given time or differ timelessly. Now, this is one of the interesting things about identity, and there's a whole realm of work in metaphysics here that I'm not going to really get into, but obviously one and the same thing can be different, qualitatively different from itself at two different times, right? If you eat a bunch of donuts today and you're a tenth of a pound heavier tomorrow, then there's a difference between the today you and the tomorrow you. Okay, but that's still one and the same person. The way I think about this is that we know that change occurs. The very concept of change is numerically one and the same thing, and an earlier time is a certain way, and then it's qualitatively different at a later moment. So the very concept of change presupposes numerical sameness through the change. It's one and the same thing that we're talking about. We're not talking about two different things. We're talking about one thing that's undergone a transition. If you want to know whether or not 
two things really are two, or if they're really just one thing, if you can find any simultaneous difference between them, they're not the same thing. So imagine that uh, back in the 90s, I kept talking about my friend BC. Yeah, I talked to BC on the phone. BC did this. BC did that. BC is kind of a ladies' man. BC is a very charming fellow. BC is famous. And you start to ask yourself, wow, wait, who is this BC that Dale's talking about? I wonder if it's Bill Clinton. Okay, but then you call me up one day and you can see on your TV that Bill Clinton is currently speaking at some public event for, let's say, foreign dignitaries or something. And you find out from me that, yeah, BC is here with me, not at that event. Okay, well, you know, then BC isn't Bill Clinton. It's got to be somebody else. It's a different being. So if you find any simultaneous difference, you know you're dealing with two things, not with one. If you are really just talking about one thing in different ways, it's never going to be different at the same time. It just is how it is at any given time. Okay, so this concept of numerical identity seems clear, just as clear as the concept bigger than or near to. It's easily understood. And it seems like it's fundamental to our thought. You can't define this concept in terms of other concepts. And also, this relation of numerical identity doesn't seem to come in kinds or in degrees, unlike qualitative sameness. Right? And people will always confuse these two. Qualitative sameness comes in degrees. Maybe a brother and sister look somewhat alike, but then so-called identical twins look really, really alike. Like it's hard to tell them apart. So you have a lesser degree of qualitative similarity and a greater degree of qualitative similarity. Imagine that you can find in the world somewhere a doppelganger, someone who looks almost just like you. There, there might be a high degree of similarity in one respect, like how their face looks. But in other respects, probably they're going to be very different from you. They're different in their family and their beliefs and what language they speak and things like that. So there are dimensions and kinds of qualitative sameness. There are degrees of qualitative sameness. Yeah, but as concerns numerical sameness, things just are or aren't numerically the same thing. And if they're numerically the same thing, you really shouldn't refer to them as things. That's kind of misleading. One way you can keep these two different ideas of sameness in your mind separate is to think about the Star Trek shows and movies. They have this transporter thing that somehow makes a perfect copy of the person who gets into the transporter. And supposedly this sends you down to visit another planet and so on. I would never get into a machine like that. But anyway, there are several episodes where this machine malfunctions and a person steps into it. The machine copies their pattern completely and it, so to speak, prints off another one and that new person's standing right there. The idea is that in terms of their intrinsic qualities, they're just alike, at least in terms of their present qualities, not in terms of historical qualities. Uh, but yeah, obviously they're still numerically two beings, even though they're practically indistinguishable in their intrinsic qualities. Okay. Now, we all understand these concepts and we constantly use them. It's just that you don't realize you're doing it until you've taken a class in philosophy. So, for instance, if I make a statement like, Candace is my only wife, there are really two assertions here in this simple sentence that Candace is my only wife. One is that Candace is my wife. That's a predication, subscribing the quality of being Dale's wife to Candace. And then there's also a quantitative claim. And this is captured just by the simple English word only. 
But the way you translate this into the language of contemporary logic is you say this, Candace is Dale's wife, and for any X whatever, that X is Dale's wife, only if X just is Candace. That's a way of saying that she's my wife and no one else is. The way you translate the and no one else is, is for any X whatever, that X is my wife, just in case it's just her. Or take a simple existence claim. You say it's true that there is a black swan. Okay, there are three claims being made here. It's one sentence, yes, but there are three truths that you're committing to when you assert that there is a black swan. You're saying that there is a black thing, and you're saying that there is a thing which is a swan, and you're saying that the black thing just is the swan. The one just is the other. That's what it means to say that there is a black swan. So you're employing the concept of identity when you say that. Again, people are relying on this concept when they give certain kinds of arguments that involve quantifications. So if you say only God can be prayed to, you're using the concept of identity in that claim. The way we analyze that in logic is that God can be prayed to and for any X, whatever, X can be prayed to only if X just is God. That's what is meant in saying that only God can be prayed to, right? And so then you say, well, Jesus can be prayed to, and your conclusion is that Jesus just is God, that Jesus and God are one and the same. So anything that's true of one will have to be true of the other. That's a valid argument, but of course, you should be saying right now, wait, I don't want to say that whatever's true of Jesus is true of God. I think God is triune. I don't think Jesus is triune. Right, if you're a Trinitarian, you shouldn't say that. But really, any Christian should think there are differences between the one God and Jesus. Jesus has this property. He's the Son of God. God doesn't have that property. God, whether you mean the Father or the Trinity, isn't anyone's Son. So there are differences between Jesus and God, which is why you should not collapse them. You should not say that the one just is the other. It's just confusion. But that's not my main point that I'm driving at, because some people will try to get around that with relative identity theory, as I'll explain. When the Trinity's podcast returns, relative identity theory... Relative identity theory is something which I think was not at all thought of in ancient times. There have been good philosophers who have argued that a few medieval thinkers like Peter Abelard have held this theory, and maybe that's right. They're desperately hard to interpret on topics like the Trinity, in my view. Others have said that Aquinas held this. I don't think that's so. I've read a lot of Aquinas, and his views about the Trinity are really quite baffling in the end, but I don't see him employing something like relative identity theory. Really, relative identity theory is due to a Roman Catholic philosopher and logician named Peter Geech. In work starting in about the early 70s, he 
argued that it makes no sense to ask whether or not A and B are the same, full stop. In other words, it makes no sense to ask whether or not they're numerically identical. Rather, you can only ask if they're the same this or that, the same F or the same G, the same man, the same animal, the same country, the same biological entity, things like this. He claimed basically that you should understand claims of relative identity as always being relative to a sortal concept, to a concept of a certain sort of thing. So you can't even ask if Paul and Saul are identical, but you can ask if Paul and Saul are the same man, the same person, the same apostle, the same animal. He would say all those things are true. Now, why did he think this? Well, his reasons are arcane, and I don't think they're easily summarized. I'm going to punt on that. He had a few intuitions that he tried to tease out. But, I mean, the bottom line is he thought that relative identity was needed for expressing the doctrine of the Trinity. It's unclear whether it's needed to talk about anything else. So, in this view, you can't ask if the Father and the Son are the same, full stop. His view is that that sentence is unintelligible. Uh, But you can ask whether they're the same God, which is true. He thinks thinks they are the same God. Uh, And you can ask whether they're the same person. He would say that's false. They're not the same person. So one way to put it is that they're God identical, but person distinct, the Father and the Son. Isn't this just what the Trinitarian needs? Now, we all believe there is such thing as being the same man as another, being the same pet as another, being the same planet as another planet, and so on. But the thing is, it seems obvious to most philosophers who've thought about this, including me, that these sorts of same-something claims, call them relative identity claims if you want, those are analyzable into three assertions, and one of them is just an assertion of identity. So, for Paul and Saul to be the same man is for the following things to be true. Paul is a man. That's a predication. That's just saying Paul is human. Saul is a man. That is, Saul is human. And, here's the third claim, Paul just is Saul. The one just is the other. So, in short, being the same certain sort of thing looks like it just implies being the same thing. Yes, we do talk as if there's such a thing as relative identity, but it really just turns out to be having certain qualities and being identical, being the same reality, the same thing. Now, in contrast, Geech is saying that just it doesn't make any sense to talk about whether or not things are the same thing. In other words, to talk about claims of absolute uh, non-relative identity, you can only ask, is it the same this or the same that? Now, that's just not true. And As I discuss in my piece on the Trinity in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, excellent philosophers like William Alston and Jonathan Bennett have pointed out that whenever you use a singular term to refer to something, say, Slick Willie, that's a nickname, and you believe that you've referred to something by that name, and then you use another name, Bill Clinton or William Jefferson Clinton, you can then ask, have I just referred to the same thing twice or have I referred to two different things? And that is not a senseless question. That's a perfectly understandable question. And that just shows you that we do have a concept of identity. It makes no sense to burn down this very well-understood realm of logic concerning identity statements just to save the Trinity as a self-consistent bunch of claims. 
Now, philosophers of a certain bent get really convoluted here. The most interesting case of this is the leading Christian philosopher, Peter Van Inwagen. This guy is a leading metaphysician and a very interesting, I would say, leading philosopher of religion in certain respects. In his view, Christianity just is by definition committed to the Trinity. And he thinks, and this is really an unjustified assumption, he thinks the Trinity just by definition is what the Athanasian Creed is talking about. And when you look at the Athanasian Creed, it is baffling. It looks like it's going to come out as self-contradictory. So what he does is he tries to translate the claims that he finds in that creed into a logic of relative identity. So this is an artificial language in which there is no way to express identity claims, claims of numerical identity or distinctness, where you can only express relative identity claims. You can say things are the same, this or that, but you can't say things are just the same. And he translates these theological sentences into that language and shows that it's consistent. It gets really bizarre because you can't use singular referring terms in a language designed for relative identity. But what's even more bizarre is just what on earth Professor Van Inwagen thinks he's doing. If you ask him, is this actually what, quote, the Trinity amounts to? Is this what Catholic Christianity demands of its believers, that they should believe these sentences of relative identity? He just says, hey, I'm not a theologian. I'm just a metaphysician. So he's not going to answer that. He's not committed to this being the correct interpretation. All he's trying to show, and this gets kind of convoluted, all he's trying to show is that since we can't be sure that, quote, the Trinity shouldn't be understood this way, like it's conceivable that the Trinity should be understood as these sentences, and he's shown that these sentences are consistent with themselves in the system of relative identity logic, then you can't show that just obviously the Trinity is inconsistent no matter what its interpretation is. Because here's an interpretation here, never mind if it's right or not, here's an interpretation here which he claims is demonstrably self-consistent. I mean, what's strange about this procedure is, who are these critics who claim that no matter what interpretation is given to Trinity language, it's going to come out self-contradictory? It's not a person like me. It's not like anyone I've ever heard of. I guess it's just a fight with an imaginary opponent in the mind of Peter Van Inwagen. I mean, look, all that really matters are what are the correct interpretations, whether that's one interpretation or a range of them. It doesn't have to be all possible interpretations. But anyway, like I said, Peter Van Inwagen is a very distinguished and skilled philosopher, and he's very careful about what he's claiming and what he's not claiming in these chapters. So yeah, not only is he properly humble enough to not say, I know these are the correct interpretation of Trinity language, but he also is candid enough to admit that apart from the Trinity, there wouldn't seem to be any use for a language of relative identity. Now, there are some philosophers who have thought that, hey, this relative identity idea is neat. Maybe we can solve other philosophical problems with it. It just hasn't worked out that way. It looks like at the end of the day, when you've looked at the literature, that relative identity is an idea that was concocted solely to make Trinitarian language come out as consistent with itself. If you say using absolute identity that the Father just is God and that the Son just is God, it follows because absolute identity is reflexive and transitive that things that are identical to the same thing are identical to each other. So it would follow that the Father just is the Son, and that's a Trinitarian disaster. 
on relative identity theory, you're supposed to say, well, those sentences I just said a second ago don't make any sense, but we can say that the Father and Son are the same God, but that they're different divine persons. And so now being the same God doesn't require being the same, like numerically one in the absolute sense, and it also doesn't require being qualitatively indistinguishable. There could be differences between things, and yet they could be, quote, the same God. Now that by itself looks baffling, but anyway, the biggest problem with this, again, is it's just made up to defend Trinity language as consistent. We all know that talk about identity is understandable and it makes sense, and we use it constantly, and we don't have to confine ourselves to just talking about the same this sort of thing or the same that sort of thing. We can ask whether or not A and B are the same, just whether or not they are numerically identical things. Now, as far as arguing with various Trinity theories, I mean, in a sense, I want to push people towards relative identity theory if indeed their commitments require it. And I want to do that because I think relative identity theory is a disaster and it will help people if people will go ahead and make that step. They are one step closer to seeing that this theory of theirs makes no sense. So one thing about relative identity claims, and again, these are claims that are not supposed to be reducible to claims about absolute identity. So this is a claim where the father and son are the same God, but this doesn't imply them being the same thing. Really, these claims are unintelligible to ordinary Christians. You have to be a philosopher of a certain bent who loves logical trickery. I mean, logical innovation. These statements of relative identity, such as suggested by people like Geech and Van Inwagen, they're just not obviously connected to the ecumenical creeds or to the Bible. You don't have them clearly saying that the Father and Son are different persons but the same God. And it can pretty clearly be seen that this theory is arbitrary. It's just a sophisticated way of special pleading. You're just going to set aside a whole realm of reasoning that you would apply in any other subject matter, and just purely because that would make a problem for your speculations about Jesus and God, you're going to ignore it, and you're going to concoct this other implausible speculation that there's no other reason to adhere to other than that it would save your theory from incoherence. If you do get as far as understanding what philosophers are up to with relative identity, it's pretty clearly only motivated by trying to rescue the Trinity as coherent. Finally, I want to push people towards relative identity theory, if that indeed is what is required by their views on Jesus and God, because in my view, relative identity Trinitarianism is refuted by the New Testament. Remember that this theory says that the Father and Son are the same God. Now, never mind how this is to be analyzed and what it means. Suppose Geech is right, this doesn't imply anything about absolute identity. But still, whether Geech is right or not, it's obvious that the God over relation is not reflexive. So you can't have a God literally being the God over himself. If you say someone's their own boss, really you're saying they don't have a boss. If you say someone's their own God, really you're saying that they don't have anyone, much less a God, over them, or at least they think they don't. But it just can't literally be that one and the same God is God over himself. That's just nonsense. Okay, but in the New Testament, explicitly and repeatedly, the Father is the Son's God. Okay, but since one and the same God can't be God over himself, if the Father is the God over the Son, it follows that they're not the same God. So at most, one of them is a God. So there are philosophical problems of arbitrariness, and then there's New Testament problems. 
And hopefully people will say, wow, these seem like pretty bad problems. I want to go back to the drawing board. At least that's the hope. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. When the Trinity's podcast returns, how we get from claims that the Father is God and the Son is God to relative identity theory. say that the Father is God and that the Son is God, of course, this is ambiguous because, as I explained before, is God can mean many things, and those things can be separated into mere predications and then identifications. Let's start with the predications. Last week, episode 270, we heard from the ancient Christian theologian, apologist, and philosopher Origen, and he would say that the Father is God and the Son is God. And what he would mean by that is that each is divine. Each is a divine thing. In other words, like a super-duper powerful self. Basically, he's saying the Father is a God and the Son is a God, because that's just what a deity is. And then if you were to press him, okay, but are they the same deity, or are these numerically two deities? Surprisingly enough, as we heard last week, he would take that second option. He would say, well, actually, they are numerically two deities. One deity is the Father. In fact, he's the only true God. And then there's this other deity, the Son. He's not the only true God, although he gets a degree of divinity from the one we mentioned before. Modalists, if they think that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all kind of ways God is or modes of God, presumably that, strictly speaking, they should say that neither the Father nor the Son is a God. The God is the tripersonal thing, and the Father is just a mode of that, and the Son's just another mode of it, the Spirit's another mode of it. If a deity is a powerful self, they would say, well, there's one powerful self there. That's God, the triune God. Um, the Father, that's not exactly a self, but it's a mode of a self, so it's very closely related, and the same for the Son and the Spirit. Okay, but this is God talk where it just means the generic idea of being a deity, in some sense a super powerful self. That's kind of gone out of fashion since Nicene Orthodoxy has been enforced, the kind of uh, divinity that's talked about now is supposed to be the deity or the divinity of the one God. So if what you mean by saying the Father is God and the Son is God is that each of them is divine in the way that the one God is divine, that's a stronger claim than we just discussed, right? This doesn't require just being divine in some sense, but it requires being ultimate and having all the perfections of the one true God. Also here, divinity is going to be understood as an essence, whereas just generic talk about deity isn't obviously that way, right? They'll talk about, saved people becoming divine, and they'll talk about, in different uh, religions, entities gaining and losing deity in that other sense of just being a super powerful self. Okay, but this is supposed to be an essence, so whatever has it has to have it. Couldn't be any other way. If you say the Father is divine in the way the one God is divine— and the Son is divine the way the one God is divine. And now we ask, okay, but are you saying that they're the same God, or are you saying they're different gods? Well, 
It makes no sense to say they're different gods, because there's only one God. In this sense, there's only one divine being. In a monotheistic religion, God is supposed to be necessarily unique. There couldn't be another one like him. Okay, so you can't have more than one God. It's just impossible, kind of by definition. So you're going to have to say the Father and Son are the same God. In fact, in my debate with Chris State in the book form, he strongly embraces this inference. Yes, they are the same God. Now, it might surprise you to know that not all Trinitarians do this. So, for instance, the famous apologist and philosopher William Lane Craig, he would say that neither of them is a god. Hey, look, if the one god is the triune god, we don't think that the Father is a triune god. So, I don't want to say he's a god. The Son isn't a triune god, so we shouldn't say he's a god. The Holy Spirit's not a triune god, so we shouldn't say that the Holy Spirit is a god. He would deny that the Father is a god and that the Son is god. So if you say, are they the same God or different, he'll say neither, because neither one's a God. That's one way of trying to make the Trinity come out coherent. If you don't say the Father just is God, if you don't say the Son just is God, then you don't have the consequence that the Father just is the Son. Trinitarians like Craig or Bill Hasker or Richard Swinburne or Brian Leftow, they really don't have the problem I'm about to describe. If we're clear that is God means is divine in the way that only the one God is divine, so now being divine entails just being identical to God. So to say that the Father is God entails that the Father just is God. To say that the Son is God entails that the Son just is God. Right? Anything that is divine in this sense just is God, because there's only one God. Okay, well then you're right back to this problem that the Father just is the Son. That logically follows from what you've said. And just as bad as that, remember what the obvious analysis is of things being the same certain something. So if we're talking about the same human, the same dog, the same tree, the same car, it's that the one thing is a car, the other thing is a car, oh, and the one thing just is the other thing. So there's a claim of absolute identity. If you're saying that the Father and the Son are the same God, that is to say that the Father is a God, right? If he's divine. You're saying the Son is a God, right? And then by saying they're the same God, you're also adding a third claim that the one just is the other. The Father just is the Son. So to say the Father and Son are the same God is to say the Father's a God, the Son's God, the Father just is the Son. Now that's a theological and Christological disaster. You've just collapsed the Father and Son. Now they can't differ in any way. That's just obviously wrong. Every Christian thinks the Father and Son have differed in certain ways. Maybe you think in timeless eternity, the Father generates the Son, but the Son does not generate the Son. There's a timeless difference you believe in there. Uh, maybe you think that since God has created, he's in time now, so there was a time when the Son was being crucified, but the Father was not being crucified. There's a difference, a simultaneous difference that shows they cannot be numerically the same thing. Okay, this is a pretty tough problem. And relative identity theory would provide a way out of the problem, but it's not a good way. And if you're an apologist, you ought to have another look at some of those other theories, like Craig's and Hasker's, Swinburne's, Leftow's. You should have a look at those other theories that don't get you into this terrible problem. When the Trinity's podcast returns... An argument I think you should consider.
I'm going to present an argument that might be helpful to you if you're a Trinitarian apologist and you're trying to figure out, well, hey, do I need this controversial theory of relative identity or not? You can just ask yourself, how can I get away from this argument? How can I escape the conclusion? Or should I just accept the argument as sound and build my Trinity theory around this argument and accepting its conclusion as true? The choice is yours. Of course, I think what you should say ultimately is that the Father is divine and the Son is not divine. So the Father is the one true God, as the New Testament says, and the Son, maybe he's divine in some sense, but anyway, he's not divine in the way the one true God is divine, because that would make him the same God and indeed the same thing as the Father, which is wrong. Okay, but here's the argument, and I've got this argument on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org if you want to follow along with it. Premise 1. The Father and Son have simultaneously and or timelessly differed. That's a theological and biblical premise. If you're a Trinitarian, you're committed to that. If you're any kind of Christian, you're committed to that. doesn't matter whether you accept divine timelessness or not, you're committed to it. There are going to be some things that are true of the Father that aren't true of the Son, and vice versa. Premise 2. Nothing can either simultaneously or timelessly be and not be some way. This is just a self-evident truth, right? can't have something be a certain way and not be that same way at the same time, or in eternity. doesn't matter. Okay, well, it follows from 1 and 2 that the Father and Son are not numerically one thing. They're not one thing because they've differed, either in time or out of time. Step four in the argument, for any A and any B and any type of thing F, A and B are the same F only if A and B are numerically one thing. That, I think, is a self-evident premise, and it just follows from the analysis which I've mentioned a couple of times in this episode. To say they're the same F is to say A is an F, B is an F, and A just is B. Okay, so being the same F, being the same thing of a certain sort, entails just being the same thing. That's what premise four says. Conclusion, therefore the Father and the Son are not the same God. This follows from their not being numerically one, and from the fact that being the same sort of thing requires them being numerically one. Now, this is not an easy-to-get-away-from argument. First of all, it looks like it's valid. It looks like 1 and 2 do imply 3, and 3 and 4 do imply 5. So the reasoning looks impeccable. Indeed, I think it's a sound argument. I have no objections to this argument, whatever. I think the premises are true, and they really do imply the conclusion. The interesting thing is, as I've mentioned, you can be a Trinitarian and think the same. But it depends what kind of Trinitarian you are. Suppose you say, no, look, I've, I've just got to say they're the same God. Okay, well, look, you can't deny that the Father and Son have simultaneously and or timelessly differed, right? You, my friend, are committed to that. So check that one off. That one's off the table. You can't deny that in order to escape the conclusion. How about uh, that nothing can simultaneously or timelessly be and not be some way? Well, that looks self-evident, doesn't it? And four looks like it's also self-evident. So, I mean, it looks like you should just accept this as a proof, right? Well, it's almost an airtight proof. I do think it's a sound argument. But here's the thing. If you accepted Peter Geach-type relative identity theory, you would claim that this argument isn't known to be sound because premises two and four 
are meaningless. This is easiest to see with four. It says again, for any A and any B and any type of thing F, A and B are the same F only if A and B are numerically the same thing. And what's meant by numerically the same thing is just that A equals B. A just is B. A and B are, so to speak, absolutely numerically identical. Four explicitly is a claim of numerical identity that's not relative. If you're going to go along with this Geach theory, you're going to say, oh, that makes no sense. I don't even know what that means. I only understand sortal relative identity statements. So we can ask if they're the same God or the same person, but we, we just can't ask whether they're the same. I don't even know what that means. Well, I think you know what it means. I think you know what it means, but that's what the theory is. That is the theory of relative identity. For the same reason, Peter Geach would claim that two is unintelligible. It's just like a poorly formed bunch of words, has no meaning, because it involves a claim of identity that's not relative identity. So it says that nothing can either simultaneously or timelessly be and not be some way. What that's saying is that for any X and any Y, if it's the case that timelessly or at some time X and Y differ, then X and Y are not identical. That's equivalent to premise two. So for any X and Y, if they differ at some time or timelessly, then they're not identical. Okay, but then they would just say, not identical? I don't know what that means. I know what it means if something's not the same dog or not the same banana, but I don't know what it means to say they're not the same, full stop. Well, I think you do know what it means. But anyway, that's what you're supposed to say if you accept this theory of relative identity. So a Geechean is going to say that just this is not a sound argument because it has poorly formed non-sentences in it that can't be understood. So it's just unintelligible. We can't even know that it's valid. Specifically, premises two and four are the problem, but even three, which is a preliminary conclusion, you would say you can't understand that. Okay. But look, let me put it this way. If you could follow this argument when I first presented it, that shows that you did understand those statements. And so it's just false to say that no one understands those statements, that they're just unintelligible. It's just a way of arbitrarily trying to avoid the conclusion that you don't want because it's required by your theory. Special pleading is basically just making an arbitrary exception for your own theory or for your own claim. And the kind of special plea I have in mind is where there's some perfectly obvious, perfectly general point that we all can know to be so if we would only think about it. And this point is denied simply because it reveals a problem for your own theory. So imagine the following exchange. Say your friend texts you on your phone and says, hey, guess what? I drew a four-sided triangle. And you, being competent in geometry, you roll your eyes and you text back, but a triangle, by definition, has only three sides. So you couldn't have drawn a four-sided triangle. And then your friend texts you back and says, you don't understand, man. This triangle is special. You can't judge it by generalizations from observing other triangles. I don't care how many other triangles you've seen. You haven't seen this one. It's special. It's a four-sided triangle. And so don't try to preach to me this crazy, arbitrary assumption that triangles can only have three sides. That's the very thing I'm denying. You're begging the question, dude. Now, <laughs> you're, 
I don't know what your friend drew, but it wasn't a four-sided triangle, right? It was maybe a lopsided square or something, but it wasn't a triangle, whatever kind of geometrical figure it was. Now, why is your friend's reply out of line? Why is it wrong-headed? Why is it confused? It's confused in this way. When you say that triangles have three sides, that's not based on observing triangles. It's just the definition of a triangle. It's just analyzing the concept of a triangle. It's the kind of thing which can't have exceptions. It's not based on experience, and experience isn't going to overturn it. So your friend here is just egregiously special pleading on behalf of his absurd claim that he has drawn a four-sided triangle. It's easy to see because none of us are emotionally connected to claims that there are four-sided triangles. Okay, now let's switch to the Trinity. In my debate book, apologist Chris State has clearly said that the Father and Son are both divine, and that's meant in the creedal sense that each is divine as the one God is divine. Okay, well, that entails being a God. He doesn't deny that. And so when asked if they're the same God or different gods, he, I think realizing that there can't be more than one God, if we're talking about monotheism, and we are, he said, they're the same God. Okay, well, here's the general analysis. What does it mean to say that some A and B are the same F? You're saying that A is an F, that B is an F, and that A just is B. It's just those three claims that you're asserting. Okay, so here, the Father is a God, the Son is a God, and the Father just is the Son. Don't! That's not right, is it? If the Father just was the Son, there wouldn't be any differences between them. But there are differences. Now, at various points in the debate, Mr. Date has accused me of merely assuming Unitarianism, begging the question. This guy just accepts for no apparent reason that there can't be a multipersonal being or there can't be a tripersonal God either way, or that God has to be a single self. Well, I mean, I do think the concept of a God is the concept of a certain type of self. That's true. That's just conceptual analysis, though, not any kind of substantial assumption. I'm not assuming that there couldn't be a being which is in some sense multipersonal. It just is going to depend on what you mean by multipersonal. So you can't point to this in any of my writings where I've said, here's an obvious impossibility here. I'm always going to treat specific claims as they deserve, depending on what the claim is. My claim that being the same God implies being the same thing it's not based on observation of earthly or physical or created or limited entities. I'm not looking around and saying, well, here's something that's true about persons and cows and dogs and cats and snakes and insects and trees and planets and solar systems, and therefore God's got to be the same way. There isn't something going on like that. It's just the analysis of a type of sentence that A and B are the same F. It's that A is an F, B is an F, and A just is B. That's what those sentences mean. They're a handy way of making three assertions at once. So the point doesn't rely on any observation at all. It doesn't rely on our experience with human beings being oneself. Maybe there could be a being that in some sense is three persons. Again, depending on what that means, it could mean many different things. But anyway, when you say the Father and Son are the same God, that implies they're the same. But they're not.
when you're assuming and not proving, and the things you're assuming are just self-evident truths, you are on safe ground, and you are not being rationalistic or begging the question in any bad sense. Right, so here are some things I'm assuming. Things that are identical can't at any time or in eternity differ. Things that are the same something are the same. Numerical identity is transitive and symmetrical, so that if one thing is identical to something and another thing is identical to that same thing, then those two things have to also be identical to another. So the Father just is God, and the Son just is God. It follows that the Father just is the Son. Of course, this is why you shouldn't say those two things, because they imply an obvious falsehood. Whatever implies a falsehood, of course, is false. Okay, so to sum up, if you think that, quote, the Trinity involves claims that the Father and Son are the same God but different persons, if that's going to come out as coherent, it has to be that relative identity theory is true. Now, that's a big if. You're welcome to try that out. It seems to me that my debate partner, Chris State, is in the book explicitly committed to the Father and the Son being the same God. And he wants to deny the obvious consequence of that, that they're just the same, that the one just is the other. He admits in discussion that there are differences between them and that this implies that they are not numerically identical. Okay, by admitting that, one is admitting that it makes sense to talk about non-relative identity claims. Claims that A and B are the same, that is numerically the same thing, or that they're not numerically the same thing. If you're going to go with relative identity theory, you'll have to say, I don't know what you're talking about with this talk about there being the same thing. I just say that makes no sense. Of course, the problem with that is it does make sense. We understand these kind of statements. We understand these types of reasoning, as I explained in the first segment of this podcast. In conclusion, one final piece of advice. Keep in mind that just because somebody is using a premise that you would not accept it doesn't always follow that they're begging the question in some bad sense. If what they're assuming is self-evident, it doesn't need to be argued for. And it's just something that both sides ought to accept. You should argue about things that are arguable. Also, in this case, I claim that Chris Date would easily understand the discourse of identity in any other subject matter. I don't think he would, and I don't think he ought to go along with Geech's crazy logical theory, which claims that statements about non-relative identity are unintelligible. You can't say that someone else is begging the question when they're applying some general principle that you would accept in any other context. If you do that, it's the fallacy of special pleading. You're saying, okay, well, that reasoning's perfectly fine for other things, but not for my theory, because it would cause a problem for my theory consider an argument form like modus ponens, it's obvious that this is valid. It's self-evident that any argument of the form if P then Q, and then second premise is P, the conclusion follows therefore Q. That form of argument is called modus ponens in medieval philosophy. It's obvious that modus ponens is a valid form of argument and that any argument of that structure is going to be a valid argument. And so if somebody uses modus ponens to present a problem for your theory and you say, well, but you can't do that here, that's just textbook special pleading. If you would use modus ponens in any other context, and yet you're claiming it doesn't work here, look, it can't just not work here because that would be a problem for your theory. 
Okay, but there's a whole lot more going on in the debate book than this, and I will talk more about it in upcoming podcasts, hopefully sometime in the fall of 2019, God willing. We talk about what the New Testament actually teaches about the one true God and about the Son of God. Mr. Date argues that actually several passages do assume and imply that Jesus is God, that is, that he's divine in the way that the one God is divine. He claims that mainstream Christianity has always taught that Jesus is God in that sense. And so we get into some arguments about Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, and a few others. And that's pretty interesting. So there's a lot of interesting things in this book. I think it'll be a good debate book. I think it's a debate that goes pretty deep and has a lot of interesting aspects to it. So anyway, I'll talk more about that in upcoming podcasts. I also hope I can bring you some interesting interviews with scholars in the upcoming months. So be on the lookout for those. Thanks for listening. This week's thinking music has been the track Two Pianos by Stefan Kartenberg. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.